Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. Over the last several weeks, as we have uh, been kind of trying to figure out, okay, how do we really wind down uh, Vicky's mother's passing? And uh, uh, it all began like four years ago when we actually moved them out of their house in Fort Worth and uh, brought them up here. They lived in a large house, and so we had to get rid of a lot of stuff and find a lot of places for all that stuff. And then she was in a little two-bedroom apartment, and then about four or five months ago, we moved her into uh, skilled nursing, and so even uh, the day that she passed, you know, we boxed up like four or five boxes of pictures and knickknacks and other things that she had uh, had there in her room, and so now it's the, uh, the process of, okay, finding a home for those things. It's kind of like all the valuable stuff uh, by the world standards, it's, you know, we know where it's going. But all these, these little special things, these little knickknacks, a figurine that, you know, someone else would look at it and just pass it over, but, I mean, that's special to that grandchild or to Vicky or to me or someone else. And so we're in that process, and it's kind of interesting. I thought about being in that process uh, seven, eight years ago when my mother died. There was one thing I really wanted that my mom had. It's a picture of Mount Rainier. My mother grew up on Vashon Island, which is out in the middle of the Puget Sound outside of Seattle. And from, I believe, my cousin's backyard, some photographer took a picture of Mount Rainier. And it's just beautiful. Uh, it's developed, uh, you know, this was probably taken 70, 80 years ago. And so it's kind of got a, an interesting filter on it. And it's got this old, old frame around it. And I promise you, it's one of these things that if you saw it over at Goodwill or Salvation Army or at a garage sale, you'd have passed it over. But it really is very, very special to me. And the reason I like it so much is because my mom liked it so much. And so somewhere in the process, I made it known that I'd really like to have that, and fortunately, I got it. But I remember when I got it, we were on a trip up to Salt Lake, had all the kids. We'd been up there, you know, our annual uh, missions trip to the ski slopes, and uh, uh, my dad had put it in our car. And uh, he had boxed it up and, you know, packaged it so that the glass wouldn't break and all that stuff. And when we get home after a trip like that, you know, 1,500 miles driving up there, 1,500 miles driving back, got to get the kids back in school, got to get back into work and all that stuff. I mean, it's just like we unload the car and we start running. And I remember I took that package and I put it in the closet outside in the garage. And I forgot about it. And it was several months later that my brother Doug called me and he had been up there to see mom and dad and he noticed that mom's picture was gone. And uh, he asked my mom and she said, oh, we we sent it home with Richard. And he's like, oh, okay. 
and so, you know, I mean, he was really cool with it. Uh, you know, he didn't want it. But uh, he was really cool with it. And a few days later, he's calling and he's telling me about his visit to mom and dad up there in Salt Lake. And we're catching up and all that stuff. And he goes, hey, where, where did you put that picture of Mount Rainier? Mom, where'd you put mom's picture? And I thought, where did I put mom's picture? And I mean, I was like, oh my goodness, what did I do with it? And I sat and I rehearsed in my mind that unpacking of the car. And it had been, you know, several weeks. And finally it dawned on me where it was, at least where I thought it was. And I got off the phone with him and I went out there and I found it. And I'm so glad that I found it. And, you know, ever since my mom passed that picture has become even more and more special. And I honestly think in the last few months, as we knew we were getting ready to go through this process with Vicki's mom, that picture has become even more special. I've come to appreciate this thing. You'd look at it, you'd pass it over. You'd say, oh, it needs a new frame. Well, you know, why, why is it so dim? You know, what mountain is that anyway? But to me, probably the most valuable thing in our house couldn't get a dime for it but it's one of those things that I would say is priceless but you know what what did I do when I first got it stuck it in the garage and in the busyness of life I forgot about it now I bring all that up because you know in some ways maybe that's a little bit what it's like for us when we start to get close to Easter. It's like, okay, that thing is really valuable. That thing is really important. The events of that time are super important. But we're too busy. I mean, we, we just kind of stuff it back and it's like, okay, I'll think about it. You know, hopefully I got a reminder that on April 7th that we'll say, oh, it's Good Friday. I need to get serious and think about Jesus. Uh, what I'd like to do today and for the next couple Sundays is help us prepare. Because I think almost all of us here would recognize that this is it. This is, this is the part of our faith that is priceless. And I think we want to appreciate it in the way that it deserves it. And what we're going to do today is, is to look at, at Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm calling it the acceptance. You'll understand why. But if you got your Bible, I'd like you to take it and turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, if you're using a phone and you want to find it on your phone, uh, I'm using the New American Standard. You can use that uh, version, but you're welcome to use another if you'd like. But we're going to look at Matthew 26, and we're going to start in verse 36. Now, now let, me, let me catch you up. We're jumping ahead in our story of Matthew. We've been working our way through the book of Matthew, and if you remember a couple weeks ago, we actually only had just finished chapter 19. What I've done is, what I want to do now is, is we're going to jump to the end. 
In the month of April, we're going to come back after Easter. We'll come back and we'll deal with some of the stuff in these chapters that are I'm skipping over because there's some great stuff there. But what I want to do is I want to go ahead and jump to the end so that we can focus on these passages as we lead up to Easter. And so where are we in the story? Okay, by this time in the story, Jesus has fully presented himself as the king, and they've made it clear, we're rejecting you. We don't want your kingdom. And so Jesus has has done a thorough job or a fairly thorough job of, of preparing the disciples for life after the cross, for the church, to lead the church. And then on Sunday... Before he dies on Friday, Jesus came into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry, and he officially presented himself as their king. It was like that was the day that that all of history was pointing to when the king was saying, I'm here. And it was at that time that the officials started to officially reject him with the ultimate rejection happening on Friday of that week when they crucified him. Well, a whole bunch of interesting stuff went on that week. Jesus preached on the temple. He cursed a fig tree and it withered and lots of other things went on. But Thursday night, okay, he's crucified on Friday, On Thursday night, he gathers with his disciples to observe the Passover. Uh, Evidently, what we think is that the out-of-towners, people from outside of Jerusalem, observed Passover on Thursday night, and the locals observed it on Friday night. There's just too much traffic. But Jesus and his disciples are observing Passover on that Thursday night. We call it the Last Supper. That's where they came and... Jesus washed to their feet, and then in the middle of that dinner, he instituted what we call the Lord's table, communion, the bread, the cup. He talked to them and gave them a lot of good information, which we call the upper room discourse, John chapters 13 through John 17. And at the end of that, it says they sung a hymn, and then they went out, to the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's Thursday night, it's late, maybe 8, 9, maybe even 10 o'clock at night. They go out to this Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's east of Jerusalem, kind of on the downward slopes of Mount of Olives, and there's a garden there, an olive garden filled with olive trees, and, and there was a press there, an olive press where they'd gathered the olives and they'd press the the oil out of the the olives and it evidently was one of these favorite places that Jesus liked to go to well look what happens okay this is all going to start in Matthew 26 verse 36 then Jesus came with them the disciples to the place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's John and James. 
and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And then he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou will. And he came back to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Peter, probably picked out Peter specifically because Peter's the one that said, I'm never going to deny you. And yet we all know that in a few hours he will deny him. Peter. So in the middle of verse 40, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, then thy will be done. And he came back, and he he found them sleeping again. But their eyes were heavy. And then he left them a third time. And he went away and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, The one who betrays me is at hand. So like I said, it's late. They've had a nice, big, formal dinner. Jesus has has talked with them and, and given them a lot of detail about what's to come. That's all the content that we have in John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. They go out to this place, it's, 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 you know, late March, early April, so it's, it's a cool night, and uh, they've eaten, they go out there, they're tired. It's been a long week, it's been a long week, a lot of activity, and these guys are spent, and all of a sudden Jesus, I mean, he's, he's distressed. I mean, he, he, he was grieving, and I'm sure that this had to be a new experience for these disciples. They'd never seen that before. And then Jesus says to, to the, the eight, because Judas has already left, he says to the eight, you guys stay here, and Peter, James, and John and I are going to go over here and pray. And so it's like they went a little bit deeper into the garden and prayed, and, and Jesus asked specifically, Peter, James, John, will you guys stay and watch and pray? And they just couldn't do it. Jesus goes a little bit further. How we know what they pr- he prayed, probably maybe because Peter and James and John were in earshot of him. 
or maybe he later told them that he goes over there and he prays. And see it in verse 39? My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But yet not as I will, but as thou will. And essentially, that's what he prayed three times. Because you know the story. He went back and he found Peter, James, and John, and they're dozing. They were trying to pray, but they fell asleep. He goes back and prays again. What's he pray? Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from me. But not what I want, but you want. Then it happened a third time. Then after it happened the third time, Jesus said, okay, guys, up. You know, it's showtime. You know, what's interesting about this passage is that almost all of the gospel writers record it in great detail. And they're all very consistent about what it is that Jesus was doing. And I think it's pretty self-explanatory, the whole situation, the story. You get the drift. This is happening late at night. He's encouraging his disciples to to pray and to watch and to be vigilant. And they can't do it. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's praying. And he's praying in a way that is fully different than perhaps they had ever seen him before. I mean, he, he he was cool, calm, and collected all the way up until now. Every time he talked about how, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. I mean, he just said it bluntly as a matter of fact. But, but this time, he is, is filled with emotion. He is fully stressed. Uh, Matthew says he is grieving. So this is different. This is unique as far as Jesus is concerned. So what I want to do here is, is just kind of make a few observations for us. And, and uh, here's the first one. I mean, this, by the way, now this is by no means the primary point of this passage, but it is a great point. This is a great example of facing temptation properly with vigilance and prayer. Jesus evidently was was struggling with something, and what did he do? He prayed. He was very vigilant. The disciples, as we already know, they were going to be in facing major temptation. And Jesus said, you guys need to be praying. And yet they didn't pray. And we all probably know the story. All of them, except for Peter and John, they bolted. They fled. So nine of the guys just got out of town as fast as they could, or at least got away from it when the guards finally came to arrest Jesus. How did they match up to the temptation of, will you stand with Jesus? I mean, they bolted. John and Peter at least hung there, but we all know what happened to Peter. He followed at a distance, and then ultimately when he was confronted, even just confronted by probably a teenage slave girl, he denies Christ. And so he himself failed the temptation. So we could talk a lot about that. 
But like I said, that's, that's not the main point, but it is a good point, and you should take that away. Here's another observation that I think is, is going on here. This is probably one of the only passages where we really see the two natures of Jesus Christ on full display. See, okay, let, let's just review our theology real quickly. Okay, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. We, we, we believe there is one God who is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. First person, second person, third person. And they are co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, and it was the second person of the Trinity who came and became human. He didn't cease to be God, but he became human. And as theologians through the years have, have taken all the data that's in Scripture, they've, they've kind of reduced it down to being able to say, he's 100% God, and yet he is also 100% man, human. When 50% God and 50% human, he was 100 and 100. And inside of him, what we think was going on is there's two natures. Now, his nature, his human nature, is not like your human nature or my human nature. We are fallen. We inherited the sin of Adam. We are totally depraved. Jesus' human nature was perhaps like Adam's nature prior to sin. So he is 100% human, but he's like the pre-fall Adam. And so here he is, 100% God and 100% man. And, and, you know, I know this is all a lot of uh, technical kind of theory, theology, but the truth of the matter is, is if we fully understood this, which we probably cannot, we would understand just why there was such deep grief. I love what uh, Dr. Walvard said. Dr. Walbert was the president of Dallas Seminary when I was, went there as a student. Listen to those, what he said here. He said, no one in sinful or mortal flesh can understand the conflict in the holy soul of Jesus who had never experienced the slightest shadow of sin and had never known any barrier between his father and himself. See, because what is going to happen to Jesus? Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus is going to become sin for you and sin for me. And he had never known sin, even the shadow of sin. When Jesus is on the cross, at the deepest point... What does he cry out? My God, my God, you've forsaken me. He had never known even the slightest bit of gap in his relationship with Christ. And so what's going on there is, is, is as a human being and as, a, as God, Jesus is facing that that cup that he calls it. And so that's what's going on. We, we, we see this wrestling. Most of the time we see Jesus, I mean, he is, 
totally in control, if you will. Not that he was out of control here. But here it's like, in that moment, it's like we were seeing the internal wrestle between humanity and deity. Not fallen humanity, but humanity that at least had the, the, the ability to see what was coming. And so that's why he was feeling this grief, this pain, this anguish. And one more observation, and then I'm gonna, we're going to get even more technical, so stick with me here. You know, this is one of the things I think we totally forget about this, this prayer of Jesus, this prayer that he prayed three times. You know what? It was answered affirmatively. Take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, 7. And I really want to encourage you to turn there. It's worth seeing, okay? You don't need to just listen to me say it, but please take the time to turn over. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Now, the writer of Hebrews... He, he is talking, okay, and he's talking technically, just like I'm doing today. He, he, he is getting down and dirty about what it was that went on in Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is and just exactly how he fits in and why he himself is truly qualified to be our Savior. And look at verse 7. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he is, is Jesus, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tearing to the one who was able to save him from death. It's got to be referring to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the only time we know that Jesus was praying and struggling this way. And look at the tail end of verse 7. And he was heard because of his holiness. Because of his piety, as my translation has it. And it wasn't just he was heard like, yeah, yeah, I got it. I know you want that, but we'll see what's going to happen. No, I mean, when the Bible says God heard him, it's like God heard and gave him, granted the request. So whatever we think is going on in the Garden of Gethsemane with these prayers and all this grief and all this anguish, it's got to jive with Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews said, God granted his request. So let's think about this. It kind of leaves a question that we've got to ask ourselves, and that's this. Okay, so what is this cup? Go back to Matthew 26. And you know the story. Jesus is praying. He separated himself from uh, the eight. He's very close to the three. He's praying three times. And he's saying, Father, let this cup pass from me. Now think about it. If Jesus really and truly is the Son of God, if he is 100% God, would Jesus be asking something that is out of God's will? I don't think so. Would Jesus be asking something that was purely selfish? No, he couldn't do that either because he's, he, he is not sinful at all. 
This is, this is something that Jesus is asking that isn't going to violate his holiness, that isn't going to violate the will of God. This is something that God ultimately is going to grant. So what is that? Now let me put a few things on the screen. And, and if you've heard sermons on this passage or read about this passage, you probably heard these suggestions. But you know what? Each of these comes up way short. It wasn't physical death, it wasn't premature death, it wasn't becoming sin. See, I think most of the time we read this and we kind of read it sloppily and we say, oh, he was wanting out. Shoot, you mean you're serious about dying tomorrow? Can you get someone else to do that? No, that wasn't in Jesus' mind at all. He's not praying, God, I don't want to die. I mean, most people, when they get to the end, They don't want to die. No matter what their life's been like, they would always like another day or two or a week or two or a couple years or more. He's not saying, Lord, I don't want to do this physically. He is not talking about physical death here. He's not talking about premature death because because people would understand, okay, he's not talking about physical death, but maybe he's not, maybe the death on the cross, maybe he's just talking about, Lord, Please don't let him kill me before I get there. You know, because, I mean, it certainly wouldn't have been beyond the scope of imagination that the soldiers would have just killed him right there in the garden or somewhere he would have been killed in the midst of all those trials because he had six trials, by the way, three in front of Pilate, three in front of Herod. I mean, it was, or three in front of the religious leaders. I mean, it could have easily been that someone finally just got sick of him and just stabbed him or stoned him or something. You know, but he knew he had an appointment with the cross and he needed to die on Passover. And so maybe he's praying, God, you know, let me hang on another 20 hours so they can kill me at the right time. No, that's not it either. He's not here saying, God, I really don't want to think about, I don't want to become sin. You know, uh, I've seen enough sin down here, I... I'm so happy I'm separated from it. I don't want to become sin. All of those three suggestions have been made and a lot of ink has been poured out on them and I bet you've heard sermons on them. But I don't think any of them are uh, really measure up to it. Now, there isn't any view, okay, because someone's going to grab me in the lobby and say, well, you know, this is what I think it is. Well, I read it, okay? And uh, so... I want to go to lunch, and you got to go to lunch. And, you know, if you want to write me an email about what the cup is, Richard at fellowshipbible.net, okay? No, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, there isn't any view, quite frankly, that is without some issues. This is one of those passages where you look at it, and it's like, I think this is it. Let me tell you what I think is the absolute best view. And again, it's not without problems. Here's what I think is going on. What Jesus is really asking and what God did grant was his spiritual death would not be eternal. His spiritual death would not be indifferent, indefinite. Now, just stick with me on this. And, and, and please, let me just put in a little footnote here. 
hang with me, because this is a point all of us need to know, and the application, I think, is something we all would do well to accept, okay? Here's the deal. What is the penalty for sin? You say, well, it's death. What kind of death? It's actually spiritual death. Physical death is indication of our spiritual death. When Adam and Eve sinned, it says they died spiritually. It says they died, even though physically they lived for hundreds more years. At least Adam did. Physical death is indication of our spiritual death. When a baby is born, because he or she is a descendant of Adam and has inherited Adam's fallen nature, that baby begins to die. Now, it might, like my mother-in-law, take 93 and a half years to finally die, or it could be just weeks, but all of us, the moment we were born, we begin to die. Why? The answer is because we're born in sin. That is the consequence of spiritual death. See, here's something that is really good for us to understand. And I know I'm being technical here, so, but, but bear with me and, and, and I think you'll do well. What is the real concept of death? What is it that happens at death? What is death? In its simplest form, death is separation. When a person dies, the immaterial is separated from the material. When a person gets buried, their material tool that God had provided for them for their time here on earth that's gone. That gets buried. That's what begins to decay. But where did the immaterial person go? Well, if a person's a believer, that immaterial went and became entered into a face-to-face relationship with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.9. They are at home with Christ person that has not placed his faith or trust in Jesus Christ, they go off and ultimately end up separated from God in a place the Bible describes as hell or Hades or a falling pit or a lake that just burns continuously where there's great anguish. But the basic concept of death is separation, physical death and also spiritual death. In spiritual death, what is the consequences? We are separated from God. Adam, before he sinned, was in communion with God. Adam would walk with God. He he enjoyed a a face-to-face relationship with God. But what happened when sin came? There was separation. He died spiritually, and he no longer had a relationship with God. So for Jesus to to be the sacrifice that would 
reconcile us back to God. He didn't just have to die physically. He had to die spiritually. And that's why Jesus said, My God, my God, you've forsaken me. He was separated for the first time in ever from the Father. It, he died spiritually. He was enduring my penalty for my sin, your penalty for your sin. He died spiritually. Now, now just, just go with me a little bit more here. When Jesus died spiritually, and like the, the contemporary song says, the father turned his face away from him, that's probably putting it mildly, to be honest. When, when Jesus died spiritually, there was a gap that, that is just mind-boggling to think that the first person and the third person of the Trinity were now separated from the second Trinity person of the Trinity. Some of you are going to really think I'm a heretic here, but, but would it be safe to say that in a way it's like the second person of the Trinity died because he no longer had a relationship with the other two? They had forsaken him. He was gone. Why? Because I'm a sinner and he wanted to endure my penalty. You're a sinner, and he wanted to endure your penalty. For Jesus to have been the, the propitiation, to throw a $3 word at you, to be, for Jesus to be the propitiation for my sin, to fully satisfy the holy God of the universe, Jesus had to endure what I deserved, what you deserved. God could not be made propitious. God could not be satisfied with sin. The holiness and glory of God could not be satisfied with our sin. He could not have been made propitious unless adequate sacrifice had been made. And the only thing that was adequate enough was spiritual death on behalf of or coming from the sacrifice, Jesus. And so perhaps what it was is Jesus was saying, in a way, it's like, do I need to eternally, forever, be in that state of spiritual death? I think that's what the cup was. And do you remember what Jesus said at the end of his prayer? Not what I will, but you will. Because it's like Jesus was so totally surrendering to the will of God. He knew that it was God the Father that had to rescue him. And in the same way that his physical resurrection was indication of his physical victory over death. You know what? His ascension, when God received him back into heaven, was indication of God 
also accepting him back into spiritual life. Not that it didn't that it happened 40 days after the resurrection. It's just that's how we know. Jesus didn't just come back to life like people that he raised only to die again. No, Jesus came back to life and was ultimately received back into heaven. So think about that. Some food for thought. What is the physical, what's the cup? But here's the point I really wanted to make, you know, when we think about all this stuff. Here's the deal. Whatever it is, and maybe there is another option that's even better than that one. The primary point today is that Jesus was willing to accept it. Jesus accepted even the risk, if you will, to put it in human terms, of being completely and eternally separated from the Father. Indefinitely, eternally, for me and for you. That's what Jesus Christ accepted. That's what he was wrestling with there in the garden. Now, we've gotten real technical today. We've, we've gotten down in the weeds as, about as deep as you can get. But I want you just to come back and, and, and think about this. What Jesus did there in the Garden of Gethsemane, grieving, struggling, straining, stressed, was he fully accepted the mission of saving you, of saving me, of giving to God whatever it was God needed so that you and I could be in his presence. You know, when Charles Wesley, the old hymn writer, the brother of John Wesley, 200, 250 years ago, when he thought about it, these are the words he wrote. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for me. He willingly accepted the sacrifice, the opportunity to sacrifice himself for us so that we could have heaven and a relationship with his Father, even at risk of his own relationship with the Father. You know, when you see that, when I see that, boy, it puts into perspective. Because how many times do we struggle to accept what God has dealt out to us? Maybe a turn in the economy and you don't have the money that we think we should have. and we're, we're struggling to accept this new normal of less money. Or maybe a turn in our health and we're struggling to accept this new normal of not feeling as well as we think we should. Or maybe having some disability. 
when, when, when maybe our employment is such and it's, it's not what we think it should be, we're struggling to accept it. I mean, when God has, has, has provided for us and said, this is the path, walk in it, and I struggle to accept it. Man, what does that say about me when I think about what Jesus accepted just so I could even be in relationship with God? Let me ask you, are you willing? Is there, is, is there an, a heart of surrender inside of you that says, not my will, yours be done? Oh, let your request be made known unto heaven. You know, you have not because you ask not. God says, ask away. But at the end of the day, it's not my will. It's your will. That's what Jesus said. He accepted the mission that God had given to him. And the challenge to us is to say, do I accept the mission he has for me? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for just the chance to think deeply about what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, we know that he, he was in great pain and anguish and struggled. But at the end of the night, he was willing and fully did whatever it is you wanted. And Lord, I thank you that uh, you answered his prayer. You heard him. When he cried out, Father, you didn't abandon him. You, you, Father, rescued him. You heard him. We may not fully understand how all these, this data works together. But Lord, we know you answer prayer. And you, we know you call us to accept. We take great joy in the fact that you answer prayer. And Father, today we ask for great courage to accept all that you uh, lay out in front of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.